Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and as always, I thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. A number of major stories this week, as you might expect, as the Supreme Court destroys Roe v. Wade and ignites a seismic furor across America. The January 6th committee uncovers some surprising revelations, and the decision to boycott the committee comes back to bite. That would be to bite the Republicans. The Supreme Court also hands gun owners a big victory, while Congress appears close to passing a new gun bill. And as the war in Ukraine continues, that country seems to be on the fast track for EU membership, even though it still could take 10 years. And at the same time, there are people in the West who are getting increasingly nervous about whether they can hold the line and at least create a stalemate with Russia. But of course, we start with the high court's decision effectively nullifying the half-century right of women to control their own bodies. For women of childbearing age, this comes as a devastating blow. I say this because my daughter, who's 25, had a discussion with me about this, and I realized suddenly as we spoke that she had never lived in a world where abortion was illegal. She came up in a world where women did, in fact, have the right to choose what to do with their bodies. So for her, it was a matter of processing the unprocessable, something that just wasn't in her conscience. Already, some states have begun banning abortion because they have so-called trigger laws that went into effect as soon as Roe was decided. There was elation on one side of the abortion divide and consternation on the other. Part of the anger at the court's decision stems from the fact that the current 6-3 to three makeup will likely remain in place for a generation, meaning other challenges to reproductive rights could end up the same way as Roe did. And there seems to be increasing knowledge on a lot of people's parts that even members of the high court are thinking that this is one step in a long chain and that they will soon go after freedom to buy contraceptives, LGBTQ rights, and quite possibly a whole lot more. I've talked about this before many, many times. The anti-abortion movement had a game plan that is as old as Roe, and now they've won with it. One thing I believe the pro-choice movement never considered was this. The opposition did not depend on the Republican Party to map out its plan, only to implement it. My thoughts drift back many, many years to the times we used to do voter registration on the streets of New York City. Part of our pitch to the black community was that voting made sure nominees to the Supreme Court reflected our concerns and policy positions, assuming, of course, we voted our interests. Too often during those days, our reference to the court was met with indifference. Then George H.W. Bush was elected president in 1988. Three years later, Clarence Thomas was appointed. We all know how that turned out. Yet it wasn't just the high court. All around America, the anti-abortion movement 
pressed an agenda of electing allies to state legislatures. It is these bodies that have crafted the laws that the destruction of Roe will unleash. Yet if you want to look at the precursor of what happened last week, look no further than the 5-4 to four decision to gut the Voting Rights Act. That was, by the way, back in 2013. That, in fact, was the forerunner. And yet the larger population still thought Roe was sacrosanct. They wouldn't dare seem to be the prevailing wisdom. And yet they did. There are recriminations galore about how this happened and who's to blame. Is it Democratic complacency, Republican evildoing, voter apathy, all or none? And, as I've said before, they're not done. They are absolutely not done. Just so you know what's next, and I just mentioned them, same-sex marriage, contraception, these are the things that they will be going after. For proper context, I turn to my Facebook friend, the brilliant educator and playwright, Mr. Richard Wesley. This is a direct quote from him. There are more women registered to vote than there are men. There are more Democrats registered to vote than there are Republicans. The majority of Americans in every poll have supported gun control laws. The majority of all Americans did not want Roe v. Wade overturned. More Americans voted for Al Gore in 2000 than voted for George W. Bush. More Americans voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 than voted for Donald Trump. And yet, here we are. Here we are, indeed. So, what to do now? There's a lot of hand-wringing, just like there was in 2016 when Trump won the White House. Yet there were signs then that the electorate, particularly the black electorate, was divided. It was an indivisible, or invisible, I should say, divide to some outside the black community. But I saw it. I spent quality time in Philadelphia in 2016 canvassing in black neighborhoods for Hillary Clinton. While older voters were solidly in her corner, younger ones viewed her with suspicion. So much so that many said they couldn't vote for her. That doesn't mean, by the way, that they voted for Trump. They simply did not vote. Advantage? Trump. As a result, he got to choose three members of the Supreme Court, the composition of which won't change for a good long time. And now we have politicians in Washington, Susan Collins, Joe Manchin, and others, saying that they were bamboozled by some of Trump's nominees. Susan Collins says Brett Kavanaugh assured her that he was not about to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. And yet, he was in the majority that did just that. Now, the composition of the Senate is up for grabs in November, and 21 seats are contested. The question is whether Democrats have the skills to win most of them, and what will happen if, and probably at this point, they do. In my mind, there are three ways to respond. And I have to tell you, some people think I'm nuts when I bring these things up. One is to eliminate the filibuster in the Senate and go about expanding the Supreme Court by four seats, not one, not two, not three, four seats. Difficult, but not impossible, especially after this. Another option is even tougher, 
And when I told my wife about it, she told me I was crazy and that it wouldn't work. The thought would be to convince a critical mass of women of childbearing age to move from anti-abortion states to those where a woman's right to choose is respected. Before you take my wife's side, consider this. Six million black people moved from the South to the North, Midwest, and Western states from the late 1800s through to the 1920s and 30s. Now that was obviously about economic opportunity and to escape the terror of the post-Reconstruction South. Now another two and a half million people moved out of the Southwest during the dust storms of the early 1930s. It wasn't easy, but in both cases, it in fact happened. The third option I saw on Facebook, indigenous, indigenous nations across America could open abortion clinics on reservations. As sovereign nations, they can ignore state laws. All three of these are long shots, I know that. But I believe something radical must be done to fight the right wing's full tilt race backwards. And I do mean a full tilt race backwards. Because that's where we're going, folks. Progress has been stopped in its tracks, and the ball is starting to roll back down the hill. Too much is at stake to just let it pass. Too much is at stake, by the way, to just hold marches and rallies. They're all fine. But the system, the right-wing system that's in place, that has ended up overturning Roe v. Wade, they know marches are going to happen. They know rallies are going to happen. They know people are going to scream out in the street. They're prepared for all of that because they know that sooner or later they have a plan. And unless we have a plan, and I mean a plan beyond marches, they're going to keep looking to roll things back. Incredibly, the court in the same week handed the gun lobby a major victory when, in a New York case, they greatly expanded the ability of people to carry firearms in public. In doing so, they also restricted the ability of states and municipalities to limit the ability to carry. That's carry firearms, concealed firearms, in public. That ruling was a straight 6-3 to three vote. The New York law that was struck down required a special need for a gun owner to carry a concealed handgun in public. Doesn't sound like it's too off the wall, does it? This is the latest and biggest and widest interpretation of the Second Amendment since 2008. The court rationalized this by saying the right to keep and bear arms is in the Constitution. The Supreme Court has opened up that right twice in recent times. So let's see now. The Supreme Court has ruled that states can regulate a woman's body, but not a lethal weapon. And this after the Senate passed the most significant and first significant gun control legislation over the past 30 years. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and I hate to keep saying things again. Go figure. Up next, the January 6th committee pardons and strong-arming the Justice Department. This is The Intersection. You're at The Intersection with Mark Riley. 
It's what summer listening is all about. Welcome back to The Intersection. The January 6th committee learned a lot last week as it continues its methodical work. It learned that Donald Trump tried his best to not only strong arm election officials in several states to appoint electors loyal to him, but he also tried to use the Justice Department to help keep him in office. It's the most blatant and flagrant use of justice to further a president's aims since Watergate. It took the threatened resignation of several top officials in the Justice Department to convince him to back away from appointing an acting attorney general who was ready to act to reverse the results of the election. This can't be stressed enough. This almost happened. Democracy was almost subverted. At the heart of this fraudulent scheme was a letter sent to officials in Georgia saying the department had evidence of election fraud. Fortunately for the nation, these schemes did not pan out. Yet they showed the extent to which Trump was willing to go to stay in office. Then there were the pardons. Six members of Congress, including Matt Gates of Florida, Mo Brooks of Alabama, Andy Biggs of Arizona, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Louis Gohmert of Texas, and Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia sought pardons from Trump for their roles in backing his claims of election fraud and any prosecutions that might come from January 6th. This is according to testimony given to the committee. Now, as Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois pointed out, why would you ask for a pardon if you didn't do anything criminal? And remember, he's a Republican. It's true, Trump, Trump rather didn't grant any of these pardons to any of these supplicants. Maybe they should have gotten the hint that Trump only, and I do mean only, looks out for Trump. And the final piece of the puzzle is this. Now Republicans are second guessing House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's decision to boycott the January 6th committee. It was a year ago that after, Na after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi rejected his first two picks that McCarthy took his ball and left the court. Sadly for him, the game has gone on anyway. In plain parlance, the January 6th committee has gone about its work with no voices speaking up for Trump. And guess who isn't happy about that? Yep, Trump. He wasn't satisfied throwing Mike Pence under the bus. Now it's McCarthy's turn. And Trump's not the only one. Other Trumpist GOP lawmakers are saying the same thing. For once, and I do mean for once, it looks like Democrats have outflanked Republicans. By allowing the committee to create its own narrative about the events surrounding the Capitol insurrection, McCarthy can do little more than snipe from the sidelines. And what does Trump have to say? Uh, this is a direct quote. It was a bad decision not to have representation on that committee. That was a very, very foolish decision. Why? Because Republicans haven't had a chance to turn the hearings into a referendum on Joe Biden, the Capitol Police, Nancy Pelosi, Antifa, or anyone else for that matter. And that is a good thing.
Ukraine is now officially a candidate for membership in the EU, the European Union, while the war may not be going so well. And Juul, the once ubiquitous e-cigarette choice of teens, is ordered off the market in the U.S. Stay with us. This is The Intersection. I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page, or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. Welcome back to The Intersection. And what's billed as, as what's being billed, that is, as a rebuke to Russia, the European Union has made Ukraine an official candidate for membership. This is a process that often takes a good deal of time, sometimes up to 10 years. But what with the war and all, the EU wanted to send Russia's Vladimir Putin a message. They're doing so at a time when things are not going so well for Ukraine on the battlefields of their own country. The Union has also agreed to consider Ukraine's neighbor, Moldova, again considering Russian aggression. Both countries may not have an easy path to full membership. The EU will require them to reform their political systems and fight corruption. Here's the problem. The reality on the ground is that Ukraine is losing the war. I'm going to say that again because some people still think that it's even Stephen or Ukraine might be winning. The reality is they're losing the war. Sure, the West, including the US and EU, are sending more money, more weaponry, and technological help to the country. It may not be enough in the end. There are rumblings, the G7 show of solidarity notwithstanding, that some Western countries want to see a negotiated settlement. The problem is, some of them might be prepared to push Ukrainian President Zelensky to give up territory in the East, something he's vowed never to do. For his part, Putin sees Ukrainian membership in the EU as almost a, as big a provocation as them trying to join NATO. The real question is whether Ukraine will remain within its current borders long enough to actually join the Union. And finally, Juul. You remember them? The once wildly popular e-cigarette? Well, they've been banned from selling their product in the U.S. by the Food and Drug Administration. Ironically, the ban was not ordered because of Juul's reported appeal to young people, which stoked the anger of public health advocates and many, many others. Instead, the decision was based, according to the FDA, on insufficient data from Juul about potentially harmful chemicals that could leak from their e-cigarettes pods. As you might expect, public health officials hailed this decision. It's long been their belief that Juul deliberately marketed their product to young people. The vaping and tobacco industries, on the other hand, say the FDA decision hurts cigarette smokers who just want a safe way to quit smoking. The problem is this. Juul once held a staggering 75% of the, on the market for vaping devices. It seems that in a relatively short period of time, 
young people have gone off the brand. They didn't need the FDA to take them off the brand. It was no longer trendy, no longer hip. Their market share has dropped considerably. Yet the FDA's mission with regard to e-cigarettes isn't an easy one. They have to navigate the use of vaping to quit cigarettes with that appeal to young people. Jewel says it plans to appeal the FDA's decision. Yet consider this. The company is part-owned by Altria, formerly known as Philip Morris, one of the country's premier cigarette makers. So let's look at this logically for a minute. One of the country's biggest cigarette makers owns a vaping company that they say gets people off cigarettes. So they're trying to cover all their bases at once. However, Altria recently had to write down their $12.8 billion investment by $11 billion. That's one investment that did not exactly work out. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.